Hey folks, I'm Ben Davis, your host for the Untrapped Entrepreneur Podcast. Let's get untrapped. All right, I've got Kevin Lavelle here. I was just telling you, we'll see how accurate this intro is. So you're not the first episode. I already know where you're going to be. I'm going to place you in the exact best spot, all right, in season okay. one. So our listeners have already heard how some of our guests have been introed. Uh, but you don't know that, Kevin. So I do not. we're going to have a robot intro you. All right. You got to tell okay. me how, uh, how accurate this is. So we went to chat GPT okay. and chat GPT knows everything. It seems about everybody. Wow. So we'll I said, Hey, I've known my buddy Kevin for over a decade. I know him, but you know, dig up some stuff. Maybe I don't know about him. Write me a good podcast sure. intro episode. All right. So tell me what's true and what isn't hundred words or less. Here we go. Welcome, listeners. Today, we're honored to host Kevin Lavelle, the visionary founder of Mizzen and Maine, a brand credited with bringing a seismic shift in men's fashion with its performance fabric dress shirts. From his early days as an engineer, Lavelle demonstrated a knack for identifying problems and finding innovative solutions. This led him to observe a congressional staffer's discomfort in the DC heat, sparking the idea for Mizzen and Maine. Beyond a successful entrepreneurship, Lavelle is also renowned for his heartfelt initiatives for military veterans. Let's delve into the depths of his journey. You can tell I did not write this. The pivots, the ideas, and his unwavering commitment to impact. What do you think, man? Is that accurate? That's pretty good. I was smiling at the beginning because I figured it, it might be ChatGPT, and I've played around with it before, and it got some things wrong about my background. That is a more hand wavy, like rah, rah, which I appreciate. That was great. There were no incorrect facts, maybe some, uh, uh, a little over grandiose embellishments, but otherwise that's pretty good. Well, you know what chat GPT is all about. It's about the prompting and the prompter. So right. you had right. a world-class prompter on this one. That's me who knows you really Excellent. well. So I did screen it for accuracy, but, uh, I think we met Let's see. I was living off of Walnut Hill in Dallas in 2012, and we definitely met sometime in 2012. When did Mizzen and Maine start? The middle of 2012. The, oh, um, wow. okay. Officially July something, 19th, I think is when we had our launch party. And then July 26th, I believe, was when we actually hit publish on the website. I, th I think that's correct. Okay. Okay. So I think I was I was definitely first year in. Maybe it was sometime late 2012, early 2013. But I remember living at that house. And what I remember doing is I remember, and I don't know if you remember this, but I remember communicating with a guy in uh, a faraway land like India or Pakistan or something because you needed help with Facebook ads. And you're like, hey, I've got this company. This is way before, we'll, we'll get into like a Tim Ferriss land and everything, way before. Sure. I remember that conversation <clears throat> too. Um, and I remember exactly how much it cost for you to advertise on uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast. So I'll remind you of that. But uh, I remember you going, man, I, I need to market um, the company. And you did not know how to do Facebook ads. And I was like dabbling around. I was doing all a bunch of Facebook stuff. But I remember hiring this guy for you that uh, he was uh, he was somewhere overseas. But I remember staying up with him late at night, creating Mizzen and Maine Facebook ads. One of my early memories from Mizzen and Maine. Take me back. And, and you know what this show is about. We're going to talk about traps and landmines and all of this stuff. But take me back to the day where you didn't know any better and just 
starting a company and tell me what you thought it was going to be like. Let's start there. When you started the company, what did you think the first few years was going to be like? And then we'll talk about what actually happened. Well, I don't know that I've left the land of not knowing what I'm talking about. <laughs> I've maybe learned a few things along the way. I will say when I had this idea for Mizzen and Maine, it was, it was years before we started the company. Launched in July of 2012. I spent about a year trying to get it off the ground and figure out how to make one shirt, figure out how to make the first thousand shirts. At the time, Shopify was new, um, new-ish. And so a lot of the challenges of launching a website and an e-commerce brand, frankly, were just made much easier, right? I mean, people who started internet companies uh, had to integrate shopping carts and checkout features and all of that stuff. And Shopify really harmonized all of that. Mm -hmm. So that made it a lot easier for me. I will uh, never mince words that I expected things to be a heck of a lot easier. In July of 2012, I launched the world's first performance fabric dress shirt. And I expected us to sell out of the, I think I made a thousand shirts in the first run because that was the fewest I could possibly make. Mm -hmm. I expected to sell out of that very quickly because, I mean, you know, facetiously, it was like, here's a flying car. And it mm -hmm. costs basically the same as a normal car. Mm -hmm. And um, as it turns out, if you build it, they will come is, is not true. Uh, and I've heard that now many times that it's not true, many times from some very bright entrepreneurs. But the world a decade ago was a crowded marketplace. Since then, it's only increased uh, exponentially. But it doesn't matter if you have a great product and it doesn't matter if you have a great message. Um, you actually have to get it in front of people and they actually have to make the decision to hand you money. Um, and so learned a great deal over the last decade and in so many ways. But um, at the very beginning, I expected it to be relatively easy and straightforward. And it was anything but that because I had to, I actually had to build the product, which was a long journey. And then we launched and after I think two or three days when some of my friends and family humored me and bought one of our products, which in retrospect, weren't that great, but it was an MVP. We got out there and it was, it was a product that people were excited about. Then our sales on Shopify went to zero. And I realized I have to get this out there. And I just started just getting out there every possible way that I could. I went, I live in Dallas, went to Katie Trail wearing our dress shirt in August in a hundred and, I don't know, 10 degrees um, and handed out water bottles with our logo on it. And uh, I'm sure people thought I was some sort of religious missionary in some way because mm -hmm. I was there in a white dress shirt in 110 degrees. And, you know, well, it turns out that's not a way to sell a dress shirt. Mm -hmm. uh, I talked my way into Gold's Gym and had them let me stand up front and try and sell shirts and a little bit of everything. And it was a long, slow year. I think um, we really started to see more progress after about a year. Um, but for that first year, it was everything I could do for every single sale. And that was just not what I expected. Well, and I remember we're doing some work together, running some Facebook ads, and you kind of bumped into Tim Ferriss. I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I remember the exact number was $7,500 was what it cost. I think I'm right on that. It was more than that. Okay. <laughs> it was more than that. But I remember I, I, I won't, a I, bunch I, of money per episode, right? And, and yes. we had this conversation where you go, Man, that's a lot of money, but yeah. you ended up taking that risk and it, and it was transformative. So yeah. walk me through that because I think we're all faced sometimes with, I don't have a lot. That's a lot of money. It's a big risk. Other people are telling me it might work or other people are telling me it won't work. 
but it just, mm -hmm. it feels right. And I don't know if that's what it was for you, but what pushed you to go in that direction to start advertising with Tim? I could probably do an entire episode of the journey that led me to sponsoring Tim's uh, podcast. I'll, I'll hit a couple of the high points. It, it, it definitely was more than 7,500, but I will respect the uh, confidentiality of that sponsorship agreement. It, it was at the time um, we had just bought our first ad in Esquire magazine. I think it was the end of, I think it was the end of 2013. If memory serves, we bought a full page ad in Esquire and it did nothing, absolutely nothing. And it's very hard to track was an ad in a magazine successful, but I can tell you every which way we tried to justify spending an enormous amount of money on a full page ad in Esquire was unjustifiable. And I saw on Tim's Twitter feed that he said, um, basically, I have one sponsorship spot open for next quarter. Let me know if you're interested. I pulled over. I think I was at a stoplight when I read that. And I basically pulled into a parking lot and on his online form on my iPhone filled out, I would like to sponsor you. Here's why, blah, blah, blah. Someone from his team, I think, reached out and um, there was a little bit of back and forth. And long story short, uh, Kelly Starrett, a guy who is well-known in the CrossFit world. Um, he's a big mobility guy. His, name, his nickname is Supple Leopard. He's written a bunch of books. Kelly and Tim are good friends. And Kelly was a big fan of Mizzen and Maine and, and, and had become a friend. And somehow Tim and Kelly got, chatted briefly and Kelly was like, yeah, it's, Kevin's legit and it's a legit product. So Tim and I actually talked on the phone, which if you have ever read anything about Tim is not normal. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, I... I've tried your product now. I like it. I think I could do a lot for your business, but I got to tell you, if this is make or break, you, I understand you're a startup, you're really early. If this is make or break, I don't want your money. I don't feel comfortable with that. And I said, nah, nah, we're good. It was just about make or break. It was as close to make or break as you can come. And ultimately, the research that I did helped me understand that even though 90% of people you ask at the time wouldn't know who Tim Ferriss was. The 10% who did know who Tim Ferriss was were like, anything Tim tells me to do, I'm not only going to do it, I'm going to sing it from the rafters to every mm. person I know. And that level of passion, I wasn't looking for something that would hit the entire country. I was looking for some level of convincing people to try the product. Mm -hmm. And the short version I wrote, a, I wrote a Medium post about the results. Uh, the short version is, we were ROI positive, I think, 48 hours after the first episode dropped for the payment across all three episodes. We had to do three episodes upfront, mm -hmm. cash, wire upfront. And we were net positive ROI, I think, within 48 hours, something like that across all three. We actually, uh, it, it broke our systems. It broke our customer service. It broke me mentally dealing with it because our inventory numbers were not that accurate. And our ability to ship product quickly was not there either. We had some really pissed off customers. We did our best to resolve it. Um, and actually, I ended up spending some time with Tim later, sort of talking through how does he make sure that when he endorses a product, he doesn't kill the company <laughs> because it nearly killed us um, with how successful it was. I remember the, the multi-episode commitment. I remember that conversation that we had that wasn't just one time. It was multiple, so three times. At least you realize that your Shopify website was working. So up to that point, you know, you weren't, yeah. is it me or yeah. is it the system? You know, there's no orders coming in. 
Right. I remember listening to some episodes with him endorsing it and um, it was a very authentic endorsement. I remember, I still remember mm-hmm. to this day, like the only dress shirt I travel with, right? Is something to that effect. Mm-hmm. He, he certainly made a mark on your business. And sometimes like an Esquire magazine or any other podcast host, it's a, a little bit of a dice roll. So how much do you attribute that decision to, was it luck? Was it just you kind of went with your your gut on it, but do you feel like you lucked out? Do you feel like you made a really informed decision? Is it 50-50? How do you look at that particular decision? I'll maybe try and give a holistic answer there. There are so many things that went well for Mizzen because of luck. And you could say it was luck, but you put yourself in the right position. Your reputation enabled you to get into the room. I would say a great example of luck while I can attribute myself to being in the right room and having the right reputation was some of the angel investors that I just happened to meet turned out to be transformative for our company. And I'm happy to unpack that, but like so fortunate that I happened to be at that cocktail hour talking to that side of the room, talking to that person. That's a lot of luck. I think the decision with Tim paid off I think it had nothing to do with luck. And I'm not going to say I'm a genius person who makes all the right decisions. I make plenty of wrong ones. But the analysis ultimately came down to, I'm not just trying to get my name in front of as many millions of people as possible. I need to get people to try our product. And if they try it, they will love it. I was firmly convinced of that. And so it wasn't how big can we possibly go? It was, we need to get big, but it needs to be very targeted and it needs to be very effective. Buying an ad in Esquire was a mistake. And it was, we just need a lot of people to see us and then they'll want to buy us. And no, they won't. That's not how it works. But when you have somebody like Tim, who the endorsement, product endorsement was, if you know me, you know, I hate dress shirts, which was like, that's a, that's a terrible way to start that Mm -hmm. endorsement. And he talks about all, all of what's wrong with it. And he goes, but... Mizzen in Maine takes away all of those problems. And while I don't wear a dress shirt all the time when I have to, it's a game changer. And let me tell you how great it actually is. So anyone who listened to Tim that was a regular buyer of dress shirts, like, yeah, I'll give that a shot because Tim endorsed it and it's relevant problem that I encounter. And so I would say it's not luck that that went well. That was a really good decision. And I'd made the opposite of a good decision in a very similar, like, how do we get our name out there? just a few months before. And ultimately it was the lesson I learned through Esquire ad is what helped me make the decision confidently with Tim, despite being terrified that if it doesn't work, we're not totally out of money, but we're pretty close. <laughs> so one thing I do want to unpack, because I think this is a, one of the traps that we can talk about is you have a, a limited amount of resources, money, time, people, energy, effort, and you have a decision to make whether you can pay an amount of money to reach the broadest group of people. Maybe that's a lower amount or a higher amount of money to, to um, target uh, maybe a more specific audience. We're, we're left with these kind of decisions, these forks in the road um, that you have to make. And so one of the traps that I, I see a lot of entrepreneurs make is they feel like they just need to get the word out and get it out to everybody and you know see what kind of sticks to the wall. You tried both, you know, both of those. You're starting a new business right now. We'll talk about that in a bit. You know, how do you go through that decision calculus if you have X amount of dollars to spend? So I'm assuming like at your new business, you're mm-hmm. going to have a marketing budget, $50,000, $100,000 or something. 
how do you go through that decision making on where to spend it? Because now, ten years later, oh my gosh, there's yeah. like you can spend your money absolutely anywhere, everywhere. Like, how do you go through that process and avoid the trap of the? And I hate we're like bashing Esquire here. Like, how do you not do the uh, do the Esquire thing again? I don't know that I'll ever do business with Esquire, especially with the new company that I'm starting. It's not Esquire's fault. For large brands where brand awareness is really critical, it's a great outlet. It was the wrong outlet for a startup where no one knew who we were or what we did. It's not an avenue that will convert people. Starting a brand new company and getting product out there from the very beginning, I think is a very different process in terms of how do you allocate marketing dollars. By the time that we had decided to sponsor Tim's, we were spending money in a variety of mediums and tracking what was working and what wasn't. It wasn't necessarily a lot of money, but we had a relatively decent understanding of what our ROI was. In the new company, I'll have basically a couple different buckets of how I'm going to go spend money. And I'll spend a very little bit in, in a few different channels and understand what's working and what's not working and be exceptionally tight in, okay, this is working. Let's try more of it. We may end up finding for one of these channels, there is an upper bounds of ROI. You can spend more on the channel and it's just not going to return. But ultimately, you need to have the right strategy of how are you going to reach your consumer? Where are they? Are you looking for them to just be aware or are you looking for them to convert? And uh, I think there's this understandable gap in understanding of, well, I'll just buy some Facebook ads. And besides the fact that that's more difficult, more expensive, uh, less ROI on a consistent basis, that may not be where your customers are. Let's just use Facebook as an example. There are multiple segments of the country that don't engage with Facebook in any way, shape, or form across any of their platforms. And so if you're, if you're just thinking, I will reach people there, well, if your people aren't there, if your customers aren't there, then you aren't going to convert. And that sounds so simple to say with something as straightforward as Facebook, but there's a lot of different ways to kind of unpack that. And so um, ultimately, it comes down to building a demand plan and understanding how much of what you're doing is prospecting and trying to go just find people, how much of what you're trying to do is retargeting and, hey, they've already seen you or engaged with you and you're going to basically chase them around the internet. And for all of the pros of internet advertising and, and traceability and trackability, you still got to do things offline. You have to do events and activations and meet people where they are. And, um, you know, our Mizzen and Maine, we, over the last couple of years, have started working with um, elementary schools and, you know, understanding that a lot of our customers are dads at these elementary schools. And so we sponsor some of the events and some cases, it's a it's a nonprofit uh, donation for the different types of groups that we're working with, and in others, it's literally just sponsor this event. It's five thousand dollars, and here's what you get for it. And um, there is no straightforward answer as to how to create or allocate that budget. It is all about understanding your overall strategy, where are your customers, and then testing and learning. Mm -hmm. oh, this is a good segue to to something I know that uh, that you want to talk about, which is advice from others, right? Is like, when, when do you do what people tell you to do? Because they have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of experience. They know more than you, you know, they know more than you and you should just do it versus taking in their feedback, getting their point of view, 
synthesizing that, understanding where you are in your business and, um, mm-hmm. and that being kind of a compromise in terms of how you form your decision. So the, uh, athlete sponsoring companies thing has been around for a really long time. And I'm sure people told you, this is how you need to do the deal, or this is how it works. I had a similar experience, um, with that, with Emmett Smith, you know, he's one of my business partners and it sounds like with you, you know, like we had constrained resources, we had goals that we needed to achieve. We, we had, we're a small company. I thought about it from the sense that, okay, I can't compete with, like you said, Reebok, like that's just off the table. I can't mm-hmm. come to the table with more money than Reebok or in Emmett's case, more money than mm-hmm. Herodora tequila or somewhere else. I really got into the psychology of who is Emmett Smith right now? Who does he want to be in the future? Yep. What is his vision for himself? And I got a really good understanding of that. And that helped me shape my pitch to Emmett. And what I found out through research is that Emmett was moving from NFL Hall of Famer to businessman. And he learned a lot from Roger Staubach about business and commercial real estate. And his vision for himself in the future was to be Emmett Smith, the businessman, and specifically the business owner. He wanted to be an owner of businesses. And that vocabulary was really important to him, that he could call himself an owner of businesses. And so when I when I pitched Emmett, um, maybe some of it was luck. Maybe it was like, to your point, like you do your research and you learn. Um, I went in with a, this is what we're going to do for the Emmett Smith brand because we, we know where you want to go. And, um, and yeah. we wove that in, right? So it was Emmett Smith, the gentleman, mm-hmm. Emmett Smith, the businessman. And we made him a co-owner in the business because we know that that was important to him, right? So he'd go out to the world and say, I'm not just a spokesperson, right? I'm, I, I own yes. things. And, um, yes. and so taking that segue into you're starting a new business now, you started a business, um, you know, over a decade ago. Um, how are you thinking about, and cause I, I do think this is a trap, which is like, you know what, you've been doing it for 20 years. I'll just do the deal the way you want me to do it versus let you, you've been doing it a long time. Let me hear you, but I may not make the same decision. Mm-hmm. How do you not fall into the trap of making poor decisions either two extremes, right? Make a poor decision by not listening to anybody. Cause I'm Mr. Independent entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. It's my thing. Mm-hmm. That's one extreme, make poor decisions. The other extreme is just tell me what to do. You've done it. You've built and sold a similar company. How do you navigate that? In the very beginning, you know, the job of the founder is to bring the thing to life and get it to whatever the next phase is. Once you get there, you got to reassess the caliber of your team and your strategy and do the resources to get to the next phase. And so different businesses are absolutely going to require different inputs, different guidance, different experience, different talent, all of that. So with that caveat, when I started Mizzen and Maine, before I started with the few people that I shared the idea with, and then realistically for the first few years, basically every person with experience in the industry told me what a dumb idea it was or why it wasn't going to succeed or why I wouldn't succeed, we wouldn't succeed. And so I asked some people for guidance, but that number decreased and decreased. Like if you had any experience in the industry, I've got less and less interested in talking to you. In some cases, you know, when it comes to going to a trade show, okay, 
how does a trade show work? What should I think about? That's like very tactical advice that doesn't matter what product I'm selling. It's just literally, how does a trade show work? Okay, I, I, would, still, I would still get some of that guidance. But there was actually one person in the, the pantheon of uh, apparel leaders uh, who did not tell me it was a dumb idea. That was Damon John. Um, he was actually incredibly supportive and gave me a lot of good guidance that meant a lot to me. But other than that, it was really just a constant uh, getting bashed in the head of why we weren't going to succeed. Mm -hmm. So I got to the point that I just stopped asking anybody in the industry for any guidance. You know, I would go to trade shows once I figured out how to do that. And all the menswear experts just basically took a giant dump on us every time they saw us. My customers would never wear that. Oh, just like turn their nose up at us. Mm -hmm. And slowly but surely, you know, we sold a thousand shirts and then we sold 5,000 and then we sold 10,000. And, you know, they would tell us why their customers would never wear it. And like, well, they're buying it from me. So mm. good luck to you, sir. I, I describe this uh, experience of Mizzen and Maine as imagine you're carrying something down a, down a steep hill and you start to trip. But you trip forward fast enough that your feet always end up just far enough in front of you. But the thing that you're carrying is shaking and, and let, it's near disaster. That was Mizzen and Maine for many, many, many years. Mm. Um, but we always fell forward just fast enough. And so I didn't really need anyone from the industry to tell me what to do because they all told me why I wouldn't succeed. And here I was succeeding. And for a while, almost every single thing that we made, we sold out of. When we introduced what became our signature product, the Leeward shirt, we had four styles. I think we, at the time made maybe 2,000 units of each style. And we sold out of that in like six weeks, less. I mean, we sold out of like 90% of it within two to three weeks, and then we were out of it and actually ran into the problem of not having enough product. And so for someone to come in and tell me why I needed to do something differently just felt silly um, because we were succeeding and everyone kept poo-pooing our idea. Thankfully, I got some, some good wake-up calls, um, and I will... Never forget, we were interviewing a prospective board member to join our company. And ultimately, we went with someone with just a little bit more relevant experience, um, who was also a great board member. But th this um, woman said to me, tell me about your planning function in, in Mizzen and Maine. And I was like, why don't you tell me what a planning function is? And then I'll tell you how we do that. <laughs> and she just sort of put her hands on her head and she goes, listen. I don't care. Like, I w I'd love to join you on the board. I think we'd work well together. But promise me that no matter what happens after we conclude this interview, that you go hire a planner. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing here, but it was like, why do I need to spend $100,000 on a planner to tell me how much to make when I sell out of everything? Mm -hmm. And she basically said, because you idiot, you're going to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, you're selling out of everything. What if you didn't sell out of everything, mm -hmm. but continued to have enough product to sell? Mm -hmm. I was like, that's a really good point. <laughs> and so that sort of got me back on this train of, I need to surround myself with brilliant people who've been here before. And if I think that their advice is wrong, it's my job as a CEO to streamline and synthesize that advice and then make decisions for the company. And don't get me wrong, like I knew that I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't think that I was invincible, but I just, the people that I was talking to weren't all that helpful. So as I'm launching this new company, um, I have spent my, the last year talking to a lot of people 
um, people in adjacent spaces, people in directly competitive spaces. Um, it's a consumer product and we're building hardware and adjacent services and, and, and software around it. And so I'm talking to every single person who will give me the time of day. And I'm just trying to ensure that I absorb as much information as possible so that I can then make the best decision. And that is a real shift for me because now I have enough of a track record that people go, all right, you're not this time around as I've been pitching what I've been building. I would summarize it by a lot of people saying, well, you're clearly not a moron because you've had some success with one company. I don't necessarily love the idea, but I must, you know, I must be wrong. Let's see what happens next. Mm. Uh, and that's a nice shift. People um, still not necessarily, most people don't believe in new ideas until you prove it. Um, mm -hmm. But they're less so telling me why I'm such a moron for trying to pursue it. So that's a nice change. It is nice for people to think you're an idiot, but actually not have the uh, courage to say it because you've actually done something that's not idiotic. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, it's, it's a lot easier to say you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. You've never started a business before. So um, yeah, people are going to think sure. all, all kinds of things for, uh, about you for sure. Um, okay, we're going to take like a hard left turn and then we're going to take a hard right yeah. turn. The hard left turn is, Great. you know, you've probably been looking at me, Kevin, saying, man, why does he have such great hair and perfectly styled hair? And uh, I was... Mm. Kind of, I, I do think that. And, you know, you uh, I could read your mind and, and you could probably read mine. I was thinking the same thing about you. Now, you can just totally lie on the show. Um, it's it's completely acceptable to lie. But I'm, this is what I'm using in my hair, which is the Rascal nice. Edgar, Edgar's Edge. And yep. this, Very good. this is the number one selling pomade of all Rascal products. It's actually cool story about this. Um, and you, you value team members staying with you a long time. This is the hard right turn is going to talk about Jen and Lauren, our, our amazing wives and, and partners. I've had a team member that has been with me from day one. Her name is Idella Edgar. And we named this product Edgar's Edge after her. So we've been with us 15 nice. years. And it immediately became the number one selling product out of every single. So you go to the Jen's place out of every product that is at the Jen's place, everything on that shelf. This sells more than everything else. So I wanted to answer that that question in your head that you did not share with me is, Ben, how do you keep your hair looking so great? I've answered that for you and for the rest of the audience. Thank you. And, um, we're going to assume that you're using Rascal products in your hair, even if you're not. Um, so uh, I like the assumption. It's a good one. Okay. okay. So we're just going to go with that. Hard right turn, Jen. I met you guys when right, like right around when you got married, did not have any kids yet. You had two beautiful dogs that mauled me every time I came to the office and they yes. were like bigger than me, which I'm not a very big guy, but they were bigger than me and would crawl up in my lap, um, which I'm a dog person. I appreciate. I, I really believe in entrepreneurship that part of being untrapped and untrapping yourself is you've got to have a great support system. And if you're married, that means your spouse has got to be on board one way or the other. It doesn't mean that they're involved in the business necessarily. Mm -hmm could be that you've made a decision they're not involved in the business and you don't talk about business things. There's all kinds of different ways to, to put that together. But you've had an amazing um, partner in business, an amazing wife, now mother of your children. In terms of trying to untrap yourself as an entrepreneur with being married or be doing business with family, 
How have you navigated that? Has that been a journey? Has it changed over time, um, over, you know, 11 and a half, 12 years? Certainly has changed um, in, in, in so many ways. Uh, unpacking a little bit more of the question, Jen and I actually ended up working together. She had a full-time job for the first, I want to say 18 to 24 months of Mizzen so that we could keep ourselves afloat as a family because I didn't pay myself for a long time. And then came on board full-time as our um, CMO. That was her background, I think, mid-2014, and then stand of 2017. Um, and the experience of working together was so rewarding. When we met, uh, so we I proposed to, to Jen very quickly, uh, about six months after we met, um, and our lives just, we were, um, you talked about untrapped, we were like, immediately stuck together. Uh, our energy field or whatever you want to say, we just immediately were, were glued together. I had a, a great job at a nice, great energy firm here in Dallas and uh, life was on the up and up. Um, and on our honeymoon, I talked about the idea for Mizzen for years, but on our honeymoon, um, we got married in April of 2012. I said, this is it. It's time. It's go time to go build Mizzen for, for real. And so um, she went from married to, you know, guy who wore a suit and tie every day, went to a very reputable uh, big company to I'm an entrepreneur and I work out of my house. And um, there are days that I didn't take a shower because mm -hmm. I just went and sat at my computer and didn't get up all day. Our experience of working together was so incredible and um, was really strengthening and affirming in our marriage and our relationship. I also get why it's a terrible idea for probably most people. Um, and I'm not saying that because I think we're better. It's just the way that we work together, our personalities, our overlap, our Venn diagram, it was a really healthy blend for us. And our lives, our future, it, it, it all came down to, we felt like, especially at the time, the success of Mizzen and Maine. And so to do that together, she got to see why I was so stressed out about our vendor calls. And when, you know, something went wrong, she was there actively as a participant in resolving that and hiring and, um, you know, the absolute most magical and best part of building a company is the incredible people that you get to work with and you get to see do extraordinary things. So many of whom, you know, I saw achieve beyond their wildest imagination of what they thought they were capable of, that will always be the most rewarding aspect of starting a business. The worst part about starting a business is what people will say about you and do to you, despite the trust and the friendship and the partnership that can happen. And so when those things happen, you know, we would go home at night and talk about them and work through those things together. And so for us, it was a strengthening aspect of our, our marriage and our bond. Um, depending on personalities, I would strongly advise against it for, for realistically most married couples. And it's not a bad thing. Um, to me, it's a lot like most people are not entrepreneurs. Most people are not business owners. It's not better. Hmm. It's just different. Um, I am not, I do not enjoy finance or accounting. Um, that doesn't make me better or worse. It's just not my skill set. It's not the thing that I want to be spending time on. So, um, all of that to say, um, you know, in, in talking about having this conversation today with you, one of the things that I highlighted is I think the best decision I've made in my entire life was marrying Jen. Mm. And it wouldn't have been possible to build Mizzen and Maine 
not least of which without Jen as my partner um, in the business, because of the very critical role that she played in the form foundational years of our business, but also in building a company, it is so profoundly difficult and draining and exhausting. And you've got to have somebody that's okay with that ride and not being okay with that ride. That's okay too. Uh, some people just, that's not what they want out of life and that's okay. But if you want to go on that ride, you got to have somebody that's ready to do it with you. Mm. And then ultimately, you know, building Mizzen specifically, a big part of building the business was me out there. I was going to conferences. I was going to trade shows. I was going to visit factories. I was go I was, and have been on the road a lot for a long time. Uh, that's hard. And Jen um, didn't like me being gone, but was supportive and understanding because of what we wanted to try and build together. So mm -hmm. uh, that's a very long answer to that question. Um, and we now have two great kids. Um, Jen um, gave birth at the end of 2016. I signed the term sheet for our growth investment from El Catterton, the world's largest consumer retail private equity firm, in the delivery room for Jack, our first. <laughs> um, we closed the deal three months later. Uh, so trying to close my first ever private equity deal uh, with a you know couple week old into a couple month old. Those were some very long months. Um, and basically at the end of 2017, our son was uh, almost one. Um, Jen said it's it's time for us to find somebody who can give every fiber of their being to growing this business on the marketing front. I, I want to focus on spending time with Jack and, and now our daughter was born a couple of years later. Um, so that was a, that was a hard transition because we'd spent every minute together for so many years, mm -hmm. right? If you think about going into an office every day, most people spend more time with their coworkers. If you work in an office than with their own family. Mm. But Jen and I got to have just the best of both worlds there. So that was a, a tough transition, but also one of those things where we sort of looked back fond fondly on the experience that we got to have and said, life is in the transitions and transitions are happening. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's been beautiful to watch, man. And uh, we love uh, both you guys and your, your family and just seeing you go from newly married to happily married to happy parents and, uh, and continuing to add value to, you know, society through great products that you're creating. And, um, we didn't get to touch on it on, on today's episode, but the work that, um, that both of us do for the military community, we've got a huge heart for, uh, for veterans. And so I appreciate uh, everything that you've done, uh, to date, yeah. um, with the Likewise. veteran community. And I, and I'm sure there's going to be a social impact component in the new, uh, the new business that you're starting. Cause that's just the way you roll. Yeah. I know you're in stealth mode, so I want to leave our listeners with uh, a little teaser yeah. of what's next. So you share whatever you want with uh, with what you're doing, and uh, if you've got some place they can find you, fine. If not, then uh, you know we'll be, just be googling your name every 30 days to try to see what you're up. To. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> uh, I would say um, our, our focus is on helping parents and young kids, um, and we're building a consumer product and associated services. So. Uh, stay tuned. Um, right now, I would say just you can find me on Twitter at Kevin S. Lavelle or LinkedIn, and uh, we'll we'll start posting some updates there. Uh, we'll be very public in everything we're doing soon enough, but um, we still have some some work to do heads down uh, before we can 
uh, introduce ourselves to the world. It's it's honestly, I wasn't sure I would ever do it again when I stepped down from Mizzen a couple of years ago. I'm, mm. I'm still involved with the company, but not day to day. I wasn't sure I'd ever do it again. And after being away from it for a few years, I realized that it is where I feel like I am uh, most capable of creating value for society and, and my family and team members and investors. Uh, and so I've had this idea uh, for many years uh, since being a dad, and um, I think that it will really be a game changer for families and, and childhood wellness. So look forward to sharing more in the in the months ahead, and, and ultimately getting to to do it a second time is such a privilege because I can skip a lot of the enormous headaches that I had uh, the first time around. And, and I'll leave I'll leave everybody with one very important piece of advice when starting a company: don't register your company LLC, C corp, whatever with your home address or your personal cell phone, <laughs> get a mailbox and get a Google voice number uh, so that you will not be absolutely drowning in all sorts of spam. We already have enough of that problem, but um, that's a very tactical lesson I learned from the first time. Uh, I'm going to add on to that, that these fancy phones now, you can have two lines on the same phone. There's an eSIM. E and so I have a second line on this same phone that uh, very few people have because you're right. My uh, cell phone number is on every single LLC formation doc, which is like 15 entities. Mm -hmm. And so I am sold yep. every product and service imaginable um, mm -hmm. to humankind yes. on that number. Um, yep. All right, yep. man. Well, hey, it was great chatting with you and, and catching up. It's been a while and I uh, appreciate all the, uh, the knowledge that you've shared and looking forward to uh, keeping track of uh, what you're doing next. Thanks, brother. Thanks for the opportunity, Ben. And thanks for sharing uh, some good lessons for entrepreneurs everywhere. You bet.